I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In the next hour, a writer whose husband's actual grown-up job is running a haunted house. A British singer-songwriter who worked as a session guitarist with the bands Chipmunk and Bashy, which coincidentally is the name of the Saturday morning cartoon I'm developing. And it's a rock journalist whose recent Leonard Cohen biography states... Leonard had a natural talent for hypnotism. Finding instant success with domestic animals, he moved on to the domestic staff. Recruiting as his first subject, the family maid. It's, it's... Livewire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with writer Stacey Bolt, Leonard Cohen biographer Sylvie Simmons, and music from Michael Kiwanuka in this edition of Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with some always relevant reflections from the pool. And of course, we've got music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. As I mentioned earlier, we have Sylvie Simmons on the show later, and she recently wrote I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, which is about one of America's most well-respected poets and songwriters. And I listened to a couple of Cohen interviews recently, and there's one from 2009 with Terry Gross that's particularly poignant because he talks really frankly about getting old. And he was about 75 at the time, and he, he'd always been known as sort of a ladies' man. And he spoke about how he still had many of the same passions, but that when a man passes a certain age, they're, quote, not exempt from the world of sexual passion. They're just not as welcome in the garden. <laughs> and I thought that was such a lovely way to say something so depressing. Um, and it struck me because I've been thinking a lot about getting older myself since I recently had a gentle reminder about my own mortality. On December 30th, after a festive holiday party in which I mixed vodka with mini corn dogs, I woke up with the worst indigestion I've ever had in my life. 
And after about four hours of really well-practiced avoidance behavior, I finally admitted that it probably wasn't indigestion, and I went to the emergency room. And they took me back to a little private room where I was given morphine, which pleased me a lot for a couple of reasons. One was the horrible, debilitating pain. And two, I'd seen morphine given to characters in tons of movies, and so many of them became addicted to it that it must be really good. I was actually disappointed to learn that painkillers is a misnomer. They're, they're really pain dullers, though that actually just sounds like they make your pain boring. Um, so I understand the misleading name. So a few tests later, they told me that I had like a million gallstones and that my gallbladder had to come out immediately. And as a person who's never been in the hospital and does not deal well with stress, I was pleased that morphine also has a terror dulling effect. Um, <laughs> And while being prepped for surgery, I read up on the gallbladder, and I discovered that it's basically a bile storage facility, and it mostly just kind of hangs out near the liver, but if you eat a large or particularly fatty meal, the gallbladder leaps into action and yells at the liver, I've got this, and then it releases concentrated bile to help with digestion. It's an exciting job. And I thought about it, and I was like, I have been eating almost nothing but large and fatty meals my whole adult life. <laughs> You know, and I, I got kind of nostalgic about all that my gallbladder had done for me, and, and I was a little regretful that I only took the time to really learn about it right before I lost it. And I just, I feel, I felt like this terrible, entitled gallbladder owner. And as I read further, I learned that once the gallbladder is removed, eating larger fatty meals isn't really advised because the liver alone can't really handle it as well. And that's when I realized what my body had done. So for my whole life, I've been treating my body like I have a backup version in storage, just eating everything I want, sitting all day at work, and looking forward to every Sunday when my favorite pastime was not going to Bikram yoga. And... <laughs> I think my body had just had enough. And it knew me well enough to know that the only way to get me to eat healthier and therefore allow it to live longer was to sacrifice one of its own. <laughs> you know, I could just see the gallbladder bravely offering itself up, you know. She'll have trouble eating fries if I go. It's the only way. Besides, I am exhausted. And the, the spleen still has a good 30 years left in her. And also, I've, I've always been a, a fairly bitter person, and if you think about it, what better time than the beginning of a new year to lose the organ that has been storing all your bile? <laughs> it's the perfect time of year. So the surgery went well. The, the absolute worst part of it was right before I went under because I have watched way too many episodes of Grey's Anatomy where the only time, you know this if you watch the show, the only time you ever see a routine Surgery is when they've perforated something that they shouldn't have perforated and the patient dies on the table, right? But it could be because at Seattle Grace, they pay more attention to each other's genitals than the patients. Um, just spitballing their problem there. Um, on the, and on the table, I asked my surgeon if something went wrong, if he could say, we're not going to lose her. Not on my watch. <laughs> and, and he... And he replied soothingly, we won't lose you. We don't like to lose people on the table. The paperwork is a bitch. <laughs> I really liked my surgeon. 
But after it was all over, the overwhelming feeling I had was lucky. I mean, maybe it's just the lack of bile talking, but I was so relieved <laughs> that it wasn't my heart and that I had health insurance and that it turns out that terror is a really effective catalyst for me. So I finally stopped treating my body like I could easily get a RoboCop-like replacement, although that would be really cool. Um, so I just want to say if my gallbladder is out there and listening from some biohazard container somewhere, um, I just want to say that you didn't sacrifice yourself in vain and yours was a noble cause and I will be forever grateful for your service. Also, my spleen says hi. <laughs> Next week, Ode to an Appendix. <laughs> Our musical guest tonight is a London-based singer-songwriter whose rich, soulful voice has been compared to Bill Withers and Otis Redding, which isn't bad for a 24-year-old. He started his career as a session guitarist, writing songs for other artists until people heard his voice on his demos and told him he should probably be making his own record. He supported Adele on her tour in 2011 and is currently touring with the Alabama Shakes. With songs from his latest CD, Coming Home, on Interscope Records, please welcome Michael Kiwanuka. Oh my, I didn't know what it means to believe mm. Oh my, I didn't know what it means to believe mm. But if I hold on tight, is it true? Would you take care of all that I do? Oh Lord I'm getting ready to believe. Oh my, I didn't know how hard it would be. Oh my, I didn't know how hard it would be. But if I hold on tight, is it true? Would you take care of all that I do? Oh, Lord, I'm getting ready to believe. Then we'll be waving hands, singing freely, singing standing toes, now coming easy. Oh, no more looking down, honey, can't you see me? Oh, Lord. I'm getting ready to breathe. Mm -hmm. Then we'll be waving hands, singing freely, singing standing toes, now coming easy. Oh, no more looking down, honey, can't you see me? Oh, Lord, I'm getting ready. Oh, Lord, I'm getting ready.
Michael Kiwanuka. That was Michael Kiwanuka. His latest record is Home Again on Interscope Records. He will be back later in the show. And you're listening to Live Wire Radio. Here's the unpublished writer's almanac for Saturday, March 9th, 2013. It's the birthday of memorist Bert Miller, author of the unpublished autobiography, My Life Means Something. And its unpublished sequel, apparently not. <laughs> a frequent writing conference attendee and subscriber to Poets and Writers magazine, Mr. Miller was known for his neat handwriting and passion for the font Comic Sans. <laughs> his work is archived in his garage and can be checked out by his grandchildren Shane and Skyler genealogy researchers, and anyone who is interested in borrowing his lawnmower. And it's the birthday of Mary Kopinski, one of the most prolific unpublished poets in U.S. history. She was born on this day in 1949 in Riverside, California, where she lived her whole life and worked as a first-grade teacher. She submitted an average of 138 poems a week to The New Yorker, None were published, and most were returned due to lack of postage. <laughs> Ms. Kopinski died when a cafeteria table collapsed on her at her school in 1982. This is her last poem. The classroom. The children are so loud, their little hands claw at me. I hear the names they call me in their minds. Angry pigeons, I am the crumb. Tick, tick, tick. I watch the clock, waiting, waiting for the last bell. <sighs> Whiskey. <laughs> this has been another edition of the Unpublished Writer's Almanac. Be well. Try harder and stop calling us. That was Mr. Sean McGrath. As Garrison Keeling. You're listening to Live Wire, the radio variety show that's like eating an entire combo pizza in your bathroom at 2 a.m. and still having respect for yourself. Coming up, memoirist Stacey Bolt, Leonard Cohen biographer Sylvie Simmons, poet Scott Poole, and more from Michael Kiwanuka. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Livewire. I like that one. Next on the show is our only essayist whose work has been read at two of our listeners' self-described nerd wedding. Stacey Bolt is a memoirist whose work has appeared in Imbibe Magazine, Portland Monthly, and the soon-to-be-released memoir, Breeding in Captivity, which is Stacey's surprisingly comic recounting of the trials and tribulations she encountered on her way to becoming a mother. Here with her thoughts on Catholicism and cookies, please welcome Stacey Bolt to Livewire. According to family legend, my parents quit the Catholic Church when I was born. Actually, depending on who you ask and how many cocktails they've had, my parents quit the Catholic Church because I was born. (laughs) Going through your formative years believing you were the reason your parents turned their backs on their faith is a real confidence booster. It's right up there with getting glasses and braces in the same week, which also happened but isn't really relevant here. What is relevant is the actual reason they left. After having a fifth child almost a decade after they thought they were done, my parents asked their parish priest for permission for my father to have a vasectomy. Their reasoning was solid. They'd given the church five little soldiers ready to devote themselves to an infallible superpriest with a pointy hat. All they were asking for was the right to get freaky without worrying about another mouth to feed. But the priest said no. And then he told my parents that they and their children would all go to hell if they disobeyed the church. My dad went ahead and got the vasectomy. Spending the next two days with a bag of frozen peas in his lap and the fires of hell kissing his lily-white ass. (laughs) So I grew up in a religious vacuum. My Sundays were spent not in a polished pew, but in front of the TV watching football with my mom and dad. I didn't know jack about the Pope, but I believed completely in the infallibility of Tom Landry. This lack of affiliation was an unwritten invitation for every Bible-thumping busybody in my neighborhood to try to convert me. The closest anyone came was my best friend Lori, who introduced me to an after-school church group called the Good News Club. I'm sure there was some sort of Bible lesson at these things, but honestly, all I remember are the cookies. They were free and they were good. And when I brought my friend Kim with me one week, I got more cookies. What would Jesus do? Hard to say, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't run a cookie-based pyramid scheme to get people to listen to him. (laughs) Nonetheless, I was getting ready to bring in my entire bluebird troop when my dad stopped me. (laughs) Be careful, he said. They don't really care about you. Well, I didn't care about them either. I just wanted the cookies. (laughs) It was a win-win. But he didn't see it that way. Even though his beef was with the Catholic Church... His anger colored all religions with the same bitter crayon. In other words, no more cookies. On, one side of, on the other side of the Holy War was my grandmother, a woman we often referred to as Pope Nora I. <laughs> While my father railed about Jesus freaks, she was guilting me into taking her to Mass every Sunday. If you've never experienced it, the Catholic Mass is kind of like a third-string touring production of Cats. Most of the people have said the words and sung the songs so many times they don't even think about it anymore. God is their autopilot. But for me, a self-conscious teenager with glasses and braces, it was like another day at school. I didn't know what to say or when to say it. Was I supposed to stand or kneel? And during what was arguably the best part of the show, the part where you got to drink wine and eat crackers, 
I had to stay seated because I'd never been confirmed. So as I sat in the church where my parents were married, I didn't feel anything but excluded. If I wanted to be treated like an outcast, I could go eat lunch in the school cafeteria. At least there I'd get a cookie. And so it went for the rest of my childhood and into my 20s. Nothing changed until my dad got sick. Like most people who are told they're going to die, he went through the usual stages. Anger, denial, bargaining, and the purchase of Deepak Chopra books at Costco. (laughs) But when all that failed, and he was faced with the reality that his life was about to be over, he went back to what had once been familiar. During his last hospital stay, the staff priest paid a visit. Wanting to spare the nice man from one of my father's rants, I politely told him, no thank you. My father laid his hand on my arm and said, no, I asked him to come. Give us a minute. I'm sure the people who run hospitals have perfectly good reasons for not serving alcohol, but they should really reconsider. (laughs) Think about the potential revenue stream. If there had been a bar that night, I probably could have funded a new wing with my tab. As it was, I had to settle for a bag of stale peanut M&Ms while I waited in the hall. Back in his room, my dad told me he'd taken communion and given confession, things he once said he'd do only over his dead body. When I asked him what he confessed, he told me he believed the greatest sin he ever committed was neglecting to teach me about God. What does that even mean? I asked, furious that he'd spent one moment of the few he had left worrying about that. How else will you learn right from wrong, he asked. How will you ever find your way? As he drifted off on a morphine cloud, I stood over his frail body, not believing what I'd heard. My dad might have hated religion, but he never had a problem with God, and he taught me plenty. I'd often find him staring at a showy sunset or a simple flower blooming in his garden, and he'd always say the same thing. How can you look at something like that and not believe in God? He was a true believer. He just didn't think you had to sit in church once a week to be in a club. For years, I carried my father's words with me, working them over like a worry stone. But now, I get it. I know that his deathbed confession was nothing more than good old-fashioned parental insecurity amplified by finality. I understand this because I have a child of my own now. He's only five, and there's only one of him. But there hasn't been a single night in the last five years that I haven't fallen asleep worrying that I've messed it all up. And everything from pacifiers to fart jokes to brain surgery gets thrown into the same churning bucket of worry. I know that even if there had been nothing for my dad to worry about, it wouldn't have mattered. Having nothing to worry about doesn't stop a parent from worrying. It just gives us room to make things up. For the record, I turned out fine. Not because a priest absolved my father of a non-existent sin, but because I had a good father who did a good job church or no church. He was the one who taught me right from wrong. He was the one who showed me the way. My father, who art in heaven. His name was Russ. (laughs) Stacy Bolt. Stacy's memoir, Breeding in Captivity, will be released in the fall. You're listening to Live Wire Radio. As parents, we want what's best for our kids, especially when it comes to keeping them safe from things like skinned knees and broken bones. But now, public health officials tell us we're wrong. 
Children need dangerous situations to develop risk assessment skills. In fact, adults who broke their arms as children make 30% more than their wussier counterparts. But I get scared just watching my daughter on the monkey bars. Sure you do. That's why we've developed Risk Camp, an after-school risk tutoring program based on 1970s child-rearing philosophies. We'll put your kid in the same dangerous situations you were exposed to as a kid, so you don't have to. Situations like... Climbing tall trees. Doing cartwheels on concrete. Jumping on a trampoline without a net or fear of litigation. Playing in ditches, mines, and trenches. Making potions with household cleaners. Whittling. Gang initiations. Hiding in old refrigerators. Riding on the handlebars. Mumbly peg. Throwing lit fireworks at your face, hair, and body. Shoplifting. Sunday school. Taunting stray dogs. Jaywalking. Throwing stars. Nunchucks. Mayonnaise sandwiches. Staring directly at the sun. Drinking Thunderbird with Uncle Rudy. Talking to strangers. Hot wiring Dotsons. Juvie. Knife work. And drinking tab. I shattered my clavicle at Risk Camp, and now I get A's in math! Risk Camp. Because you survived, didn't you? Results not typical. Health insurance required. Not available in Michigan. That was Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Trisha Ferguson. Our next guest is a music journalist with a career any rock fan would envy. She's interviewed legends like Mick Jagger, Johnny Rotten, and Michael Jackson for pieces in Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and Blender, among many others. Her latest book, I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, is a biography of one of the most important songwriters of our time. He is a songwriter songwriter whose work over five decades, including songs like Hallelujah, Suzanne, and Bird on the Wire, influenced generations of songwriters. In writing it, she spent three years interviewing 110 people, including Cohen's former lovers, his childhood rabbi, and a few monks he's come to know. The New York Times calls the book mesmerizing and says it's just the soul-searching biography Leonard Cohen deserves. Please welcome Sylvie Simmons to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Sylvie. Thank you. Great it's, to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Um, you're actually going to read a, 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 an excerpt from the book. Mm-hmm. But before you did, I wanted to kind of um, just talk to you a little bit about um, both Leonard and, and sort of the process of writing the book. Um, it, to give people context, why do you think Leonard Cohen is such an important songwriter and poet? Ooh, where do I start? Have you got several hours on this? The short version, probably easier just to quote some other people. Um, Bono of you 2 called him our Byron, our Shelley. Nick Cave said that he kind of was the one who gave people some kind of right and guidance in the template in how to kind of get the dark European lacerating visions of the soul into a song. I mean, that doesn't make him sound quite so good. He was always the godfather. When I was a kid, he was the godfather of gloom and now he's a rat pack rabbi. And hey, it's wonderful. It's Leonard Cohen. <laughs> right, that's, that's, that should be enough for people. And there's also something... Uh, amazing about his voice. I think he sounds a little bit like God. Um, uh, and we, uh, we actually wanted to, for anybody who hasn't heard Leonard, Leonard Cohen sing or speak, uh, we wanted to just play a quick clip of a poem of his called The Hypnotist. I heard of a man 
who says words so beautifully that if he only speaks their name, women give themselves to him. If I am dumb beside your body while silence blossoms like tumors on our lips, it is because I hear a man climb the stairs and clear his throat outside our door. That was Leonard Cohen. You sure it wasn't God? <laughs> it may very well have been. What do you think it is about his voice that is so, stri- so striking? And it, it certainly changed over the years as well. Well, it's deepened. I think in the beginning he was trying to sing. And as his old rabbi that event, you mentioned him. This was the really old rabbi. He actually taught Leonard's bar mitzvah class. And Leonard's 79 this year. I'd asked him if Leonard sung in the synagogue, and he gave me a piercing stare and threw up his hands and said, Leonard, sing? <laughs> so I guess he's now got the more of the European sort of talk singing tradition, which suits his lovely deep voice. Well, and it's great because I think that when he speaks it, you can sort of hear the poetry in it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that the, the piece that we played, I think, uh, I th- introduces the idea of, of a huge theme in, in Leonard Cohen's life, and that is his relationship to women uh, in general. What, was his, how, what role did women play in his life and his career? A huge, huge part in his life. I mean, Leonard loved women horizontally, of course, but also vertically... <laughs> And every other angle in between. I mean, at the beginning of his singing career, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for Judy Collins singing one of his songs, Suzanne, which was his famous song before Hallelujah started taking the steroids. But um, so really they were kind of, you know, really helping him along. And, And I think it also came back to the fact that his father died when he was nine. And he was raised in a house of women, a doting Jewish mother, you can imagine and uh, an older sister, his only sibling. So he's always relied on them to su- for support and also felt the need to run away from them fast. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I found it really interesting. You spoke to Suzanne Verdell, who Suzanne was written about, and I, I think that most of us imagine that having a song written about us would be really amazing, but she was upset about it. Yes, she was. It was quite strange. I think if it had been a poem and not a kind of song of the generation kind of thing, she wouldn't have taken it quite so badly but her feeling was that she was a choreographer and was beginning to become well known herself in Montreal but now everybody says oh look there's Suzanne the woman that the song's about yeah so she sort of lost herself a little bit there mm-hmm. and she also said something I mean she said something really sort of poetic and beautiful about how he held a he, he held a magnifying glass to her life and he sort of split her in two a little bit mm-hmm. Um, so it sounded sort of devastating for her. Has he, ha, has he ever spoken about that, the effect that, that writing songs about these people has on them? No, not at all. I think he's the sort of person who, well, I can come to know over the time of writing this, he doesn't look back. Yeah, yeah. Except well, in poetry every now and then. Yeah, and you, you were a huge fan and continue to be a huge fan, and you got to spend some time with him. And, and you actually said in the New York Times, um, writing about a living subject means having to immerse yourself in that person's life to a degree that would probably get you locked up in any decent society. Um, what is it like to know a stranger's life better than probably the lives of a lot of people that you love? It's kind of perverted, like I said. I mean, it's not a really healthy way to live my life, and I'm going to do penance. I'm actually wearing a hair shirt under this right now. Uh, <laughs> you got to kind of go through his archives and go through his letters. What, what to you was kind of the most exciting physical discovery for you when you were researching? Oh, the thing I held in my hand where I almost danced a jig, I was so happy, is I found in his archives a certificate that proves that he had gone clear as a Scientologist. Those who know the song Famous Blue Raincoat, Did You Ever Go Clear? He went clear. He is an operating thetan, I believe is the term. You know, I think he and Tom Cruise can make strange gestures that none of us could understand. Right. (laughs) 
You can have dinner with Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's fun for all, I hear. He escaped um, early, though. He got out of it fairly early on. He wasn't there for long. Well, he actually, he, there were so many religions, um, and, and it's all in the book. There was Judaism and, and the I Ching and Scientology, acid women. Um, <laughs> uh, but he sort of, it seems like he sort of has settled on Buddhism, on Zen Buddhism. Um, he went away to a Zen retreat. And um, is that, do you think that he's, he's found a way to calm his demons with that? Well, as far as religions are concerned, he stuck with Judaism. And, you know, he never stopped being a Jew. And a few people thought after being ordained a Buddhist monk, for heaven's sake, he might be a Buddhist. But no, he did that for protocol's sake. And he, that's what he said. And uh, he remained a Jew. And then after the Buddhism five years, he, uh, five years in the monastery, he found an Indian guru that he studied with for a long time. So really it was a case of, I think, just trying to study different disciplines to try and kind of find some way of fighting the main demon in his life, which was very serious depression. So maybe the, any of those religions like Buddhism uh, or Hinduism that, that sort of pra- where you practice meditation, that's really what, what maybe saved him. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and speaking of the, the Zen re- retreat, it was when he was at one of these retreats that his financial advisor took all of his money. And this is why he's on the road again. He had stopped touring and performing, and he's on the road again, and, and people are upset that he had to do this, but at the same time, they're really happy to see him back. Is he happy to be back? He wasn't initially, right up until when the 2008 tour started. He was still only about 70% sure that he was going to go out on the road, even while he was on the road. It sounds a bit crazy to say. But now it's quite the opposite. I saw him just after that tour ended, and he was just itching to get back on the road again. Oh, that's great. That's good to know. Um, well, and you're going to read uh, an excerpt from the book for us and then do a, a little bit of a performance, right? You never know. Sounds good. <laughs> Sylvie Simmons, everyone. In his early teens, Leonard developed a keen interest in hypnotism. He acquired a slim, pocket-sized, anonymously written book with the title 25 Lessons in Hypnotism, How to Become an Expert Operator, and the extravagant claim of being, quote, the most perfect, complete, easily learned, and comprehensive course in the world, embracing the science of magnetic healing, telepathy, mind reading, clairvoyant hypnosis, mesmerism, animal magnetism, and kindred sciences. On the front cover, beneath a crude sketch of a Victorian lady held spellbound by a wild-haired gentleman, Leonard wrote his name in ink in his best handwriting and said about his studies. It turned out that Leonard had a natural talent for hypnotism. Finding instant success with domestic animals, he moved onto the domestic staff, recruiting as his first subject a family maid. At his direction, the young woman sat on the Chesterfield sofa, Leonard drew a chair alongside and, as the book instructed, told her in a slow, gentle voice to relax her muscles and look into her eyes. Picking up a pencil, he moved it slowly in front of her face, back and forth, back and forth, and succeeded in putting her in a trance. Disregarding or depending on one's interpretation following the author's directive that his teachings should only be used for educational purposes, Leonard instructed the maid, to undress. What a moment it must have been for the adolescent Leonard, this successful fusion of arcane wisdom and sexual longing. Hallelujah! 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 
When he found it difficult to awaken her, Leonard started to panic. He was terrified his mother would come home and catch them. Though one imagines this would have simply added a sense of impending doom, despair, and loss to the heady mix that would make it even more exquisitely Leonard Cohen-esque. Chapter 2 of the Hypnotism Manual might have been written as career advice to the singer and performer Leonard would become. It cautioned against any appearance of levity and instructed, quote, your features should be set firm and stern. Be quiet in all your actions. Let your voice grow lower. Lower. Till just above a whisper. Pause a moment or two. You will fail if you try to hurry. When Leonard recreated the episode in his 20s in the favorite game, his first novel, he wrote, quote, he had never seen a woman so naked. He was astonished, happy, and frightened before all the spiritual authorities of the universe. Then he sat back to stare. This is what he'd waited for so long to see. He wasn't disappointed and never has been. Although it's ascribed to his fictionalized alter ego, it's hard to imagine these sentiments were not Leonard's own. Decades later, he will still say, quote, I don't think a man ever gets over that first sight of the naked woman. I think that's Eve standing over him. That's the morning and the dew on the skin. And I think that's the major content of every man's imagination. All the sad adventures in pornography and love and song are just steps on the path towards that holy vision. The maid, incidentally, was a ukulele player, an instrument his fictional alter ego took for a lute and the girl, by extension, for an angel. And everybody knows that naked angels possess a portal to the divine. sisters of mercy they are not departed or gone they were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on and they brought me their comfort and later they brought me this song I hope you run into them you who've been traveling so long when I left they were sleeping I hope you run into them soon Turn on the light You can read their address By the moon And you won't make me jealous If I hear That they've sweetened your night We weren't lovers like that And besides It would still be We weren't lovers like that And besides, it would still be
Sylvie Simmons. Sylvie had some help from Suzanne Tufan, Ben Landsberg, and our house band, led by Mr. Jim Brunberg. Sylvie's book, I'm Your Man, The Life of Leonard Cohen, is available now in hardback. You're listening to Livewire Radio. Livewire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Markets, who would like to point out that St. Patrick's Day is almost here, which is traditionally a time when people dye things green that honestly don't need to be. Whole Foods has plenty of things that are already green. That's saving you one step right there. Plus, leafy green vegetables are generally good for your health, which offsets the fact that St. Patrick's Day is generally not. More information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com. And here now with his poetic thoughts on the subject of poets, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesman and the Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole, with Reflections from the Pool. I always kind of imagine ladies putting in Craigslist ad for their um, poet, like wanted poet, I need a poet. And I'm always thinking of Leonard Cohen getting the job every time. (laughs) But this would be my application. I want to be your poet. I want to surprise you in the morning with an overcoat of sourdough toast. I'll build a rowboat of swan feather pillows rowing you to work while you nibble strawberries. I'll kiss the back of your knees from under your desk while you do the accounts payable. (laughs) If anyone bothers you at work, I will lead them through one magical door, then another magical door, through an unfathomable labyrinth to finally end at a very small bathroom with no toilet from which they will never return. (laughs) And I will take you to lunch in a rocket, and we'll eat on the moon and throw moon rocks at each other and fill our space helmets full of goldfish on a whim. And when you're not looking, I'll put stars in your purse. And later, when you reach for a stick of gum, you'll be declared the galaxy queen of Sector 5 right after your 2 o'clock controllers meeting. (laughs) Yes, you could tell everybody I carved your cell phone from a redwood, and starlings fly from it whenever you get a call. I don't mind. And when you take off your shoes at the end of the day, I want to mail them off to Honduras and have them filled with beautiful bananas. And if you walk slow enough... I will plant flower beds full of playful kittens in every barefoot step you take. And I will make you a salad of children's giggles, and I will serve you a steaming roast on the gas tank of a motorcycle racing 150 miles an hour toward a hot tub full of chocolate mousse. And I'll arrange for a ride on a dolphin after dinner, playfully spurting wine out of its blowhole into your clearest crystalline goblet. And when you're ready for bed, your dress shall turn into a thousand white flowing sheets exploding from your midsection like the undulating lips of a spring lily. And I shall call my two polar bears, Bathsheba and Cumberbund, and they shall carry you to a pit of a million cotton balls where we will make love a thousand kisses deep. So what do you think? Do I get the job? Thank you. Scott Pool, everybody. with reflections from the pool. You're listening to Livewire on the car radio you just stole. 
That is surprising. I would have thought perhaps you'd be listening to Ozzy or a Hall & Oates CD you found under the sink, but public radio, good for you. You're maturing. (laughs) To listen again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and our website at livewireradio.org on your hot iPad. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. I keep telling you, detectives, I ain't had nothing to do with Gino Morelli's disappearance. Good story, Tony. Tell me another. Too bad we got you on tape. Uh, uh, Tape? That's right, Tony. We've had a wiretap running on you for six months, and last night, you finally slipped up. Detective, play the tape for Tony here. All right, everything's set. I'm going to take out Gino Morelli personally. Freddy Bats, you and Jimmy the Snake, Ice Frank Andaloni. Mario, I want you to put the lights out for old Nicky V. Paulie, put two in the back of the head of Mickey alone. Joey, you and Enzo whack Duke Mitchell. What about Fat Louie? Giuseppe, head over to Fat Louie's nightclub on 5th. Molotov the whole place. We got you dead to rights, Tony. You're going away for a long time. Detectives, no, you got it all wrong. See, when I was talking about taking out Gino, I meant for his birthday, okay? Uh, I missed the Facebook notification and felt real bad about it. Uh, We were going to get ice cream, but he stood me up. I I sure hope he's okay. Sure, Tony. Even if a jury believed that, what about all those other guys you ordered dead? Dead? Are you crazy? I told my boys to ice Frank Andaloni on account of his fever. Frank's been real sick. I wanted my guys to bring over an ice pack, help soothe the man when he's recuperating. What a caring individual you are, Tony. But your top guy, Mario, put the lights out on old Nicky V. You said so yourself. Yeah, but when I said put the lights out, I was, of course, referring to replacing his incandescent bulbs with some compact fluorescence. Uh, I'm trying to help him lower his carbon footprint. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was Earth Day. And I suppose when you sent your guy, Pauly, to put two in the back of the head of Mickey Orlan, you meant kisses. Kisses? No. Pauly's my best barber. Uh, He was going to shave Derek Jeter's jersey number to the back of Mikey's head. And Mikey, he's the biggest Derek Jeter fan I know. Flashing the number two on the back of your head lets everybody see that. All right, right, enough. Okay, you had your guys whack Duke Mitchell. Yeah, whack. W-A-C-K. It's a radio station. 1420 on the AM dial, serving Newark, Rochester, and the Finger Lakes region. Look it up. I had a bunch of podcasts I thought that he would enjoy. Fine, fine, fine. Fine. However, 
We have you clear as day ordering the Molotov cocktail hit on Fat Louie's place. Cocktail? I, I didn't say cocktail. I just said Molotov. Same thing. Detectives, you don't know your history. Vacheslav Molotov was a leading figure in the Soviet government from the 1920s and 30s. What? Yeah, he was instrumental in the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact of 1939 and remained the key figure under Joseph Stalin up until his retirement in 1961. My guy Giuseppe took Russian history in college and is quite the academic. Now, Fat Louie and his new Russian girlfriend have been fighting a lot, so I figured Giuseppe could help him make a little non-aggression pact of his their own. Oh, okay, you know what? Just shut up. Just, just shut up, Tony. I can't take it anymore. Get this guy out of here, detective. We can't let this guy walk. Damn it, we have to. That tape was all we had. All right. Tony, you're free to go. Get the hell out of here. Well, I'd love to stay and chat, detectives, but I really must be going. Uh, I have a lot of other mob guys to shoot with bullets and kill. Wait, what did he say? Doesn't matter. We'll never make it stick. That was Sean McGrath, Darius Pierce, and Andrew Harris. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Michael Kiwanuka. Something so real it could set me free I've been thinking I might cut this loose Never felt so wrong How could this be? We could carry on We could carry on Problem running through my head. Just gotta leave it here for death. There's another doubt running through my mind. They tell me leave it all behind. Then we could carry on. We could carry on If 
if you dare If you'd care to show me If you'd care Thank you very much. So I'll play one, one more song, this one. Good, good 
Jim Brunberg and Dave Jorgensen. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hammeister and performers Andrew Harris, Darius Pierce, and Trisha Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, Ben Coleman, and Chelsea Kane. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Mark Bauk. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Von Drele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and 
make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.